Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the ninth episode of season five. Before we get into this week's story, let's break the ice a little bit. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. Here is this week's dad fact. To remove a broken light bulb from a lamp or light fixture, first cut off the electrical power. Whilst wearing a thick pair of rubber gloves, press half of a large cut potato into the jagged glass. The glass will become embedded in the potato and easy to remove. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but it probably works. Stuff like that does work, doesn't it? You know them old tales that you hear from people? Shove a potato in. That'll work. The second and final opening icebreaker segment is this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Here is this week's haiku. Lost in emptiness, absent of the human touch, awaiting the next world. A haiku is a Japanese poem made up of 17 syllables in three lines of 5, 7 and 5. There's a link to the Serial Killers book of Haiku 2 in the episode description. That's where I get these from this season. If you are interested in buying it or learning more about Haiku or just hearing some more murderous poems from Japan. With my intro icebreakers complete, let's get into this week's episode. This week's case was semi-suggested by listener Tamar Powlsland. I hope I'm saying that right, Tamar, back in November of 2021. I say semi-suggested because when Tamar bought me three coffees via buymeacoffee.com slash British Murders, she said a case based in Cornwall would be cool. No specific case was suggested though, so the other semi-suggested credit goes to Cornwall Live. In their October 2018 article titled 14 Murders That Shook Cornwall, this case was the one that piqued my interest the most. On the back of what I just said, You might have guessed that we're in the historic county of Cornwall this week. Specifically, we're in the semi-rural hamlet of Carnkey in West Cornwall. Here are your five quickfire facts about Cornwall. Number one, Cornwall has the longest coastline of any county in the UK. Ordnance survey mappers have measured it at 1,086 kilometres or 674.8 miles. Number two, Cornwall has its own language. Cornish, known as Kernuak. Kernuak? I did research it before I started recording this. I think it's Kernuak. All but died out as a language in the 18th century, but has seen a modern day revival. Number three, Cornwall has shark infested waters. Basking sharks and whale sharks are common sights in Cornish waters, and on one occasion, a blue shark was spotted too. Number four, Cornwall has its own flag. The design of St. Piran's flag, again, Piran, Piran, we'll go with Piran. It's known as Banner Peran in Kernawak. Can't say that word. It's a white cross on a black background. That's the Cornish flag. And number five, Cornwall has its own form of wrestling. Been around for hundreds of years and the wrestler's motto is fair play is sweet play. I couldn't find any population figures for Carnkey, but its post town of Helston had a population of 11,180 people, according to the 2011 census. 
We're back to having a solo villain this week, with the themes discussed within this episode being domestic violence, murder, and child murder. Listener discretion, as always, is advised. Our timeline this week starts in late August 2000, but before we get there, let's head back to 1982. With the Falklands War coming to a close and Madness's House of Fun leading the UK singles chart, we're starting our story on June 5th, 1982. On that date, 18-year-old Leslie Wyatt married her first husband, 20-year-old labourer Michael Tranter. During their seven years together as husband and wife, the Tranters welcomed four children into the world in 1983, 84, 86 and 87. The couple's two first children were girls, with Sarah Jane being followed closely behind by Anne-Marie. Their third child was a boy, Stephen, followed closely by another boy, Craig. During my research, I was unable to find out the exact reason for this, but Leslie and Michael's marriage broke down towards the end of the decade, with them finally calling it a day in 1989. Leslie married her second husband on June 22, 1990, a year after separating from Michael. The second husband in question would go on to complete a series of acts so atrocious that he'd find himself the villain of this week's episode. Also a labourer, Lee Ford occasionally worked as a builder and roofer to provide for his new family. At first, the Fords lived together with Leslie's children in Telford, where they met, a town in Shropshire, West Midlands. During their first five years together as a married couple, it appears as if they separated at some stage before reconciling and then deciding to move 270 miles southwest of Telford to the picturesque county of Cornwall. That was in 1995. The family of six moved to the hamlet of Carnkey in 1998 and lived in a rented property there. If you're wondering what part Michael Tranter played in the children's lives, Unfortunately, it was that of a long-distance father. Michael would later explain that he used to see the children every weekend, but as soon as they moved down to Cornwall, he claims to have had difficulty gaining access to them. It's unclear whether he meant that in a logistical sense, because Cornwall's pretty far, it's right at the bottom of the country, or whether it's because Leslie and or Lee made things difficult for him. I'm sure you'll come to your own conclusion as the story progresses. Let's discuss Lee and his personality now in a bit more detail. He liked to have a drink and did so frequently at Kanki's local cricket club. A quick look online suggests the club in question was Wendron Cricket Club, as it appears to be the only one located in Kanki. Lee, who was 33 years old in the year 2000, three years Leslie's junior, was also said to have an extremely short fuse combined with a wicked temper. Perhaps drinking alcohol wasn't the smartest thing to do given his dark personality traits. By May 2000, things had gone rapidly downhill for the Fords. Leslie had concerns that Lee was having a sexual relationship with her eldest daughter, the then 17-year-old Sarah Jane. She even went to speak with a solicitor to voice her concerns and get some advice on what her options were from a legal standpoint. It wasn't just the suspected sexual relationship that worried Leslie though. She was in a constant state of anxiety due to threats of violence from Lee, caused primarily by his frequent consumption of alcoholic beverages. The pair often argued about trivial things, such as Lee being frustrated that he couldn't videotape his TV programs because his stepkids were watching something else. 
This is clearly before Sky Plus where you can record multiple things at once. Lee would sulk to the point where he spent most of his free time locked in the garage where he could watch his shows uninterrupted. It's thought that any sexual relationship between Lee and Sarah Jane had been going on since March 2000, with Lee's role as an overbearing stepfather adding further fuel to Leslie's fire. The solicitor reached out to social services to make them aware of everything going on at the Ford's home in Carnkey, but because Sarah Jane was 17, they were informed that nothing could be done. For any non-UK listeners, the legal age of sexual consent in the UK is 16 and has been since August 14th, 1885. Before that, the legal age of consent here was 13. How frightening must that have been? But what about Leslie's other three children from a first marriage? 17-year-old Sarah Jane was earning money by working at McDonald's in Falmouth, a town located seven miles east of Carnkey, but the rest all attended Helston School, known in the present day as Helston Community College. 16-year-old Anne-Marie will likely have been studying for her GCSEs, 14-year-old Stephen will have likely been in year 9, and 13-year-old Craig will have been in year 8. It's now time to discuss this week's tragic timeline of events, which started on August 31st, 2000. That was the last time anybody could recall seeing Leslie and her four children from her first marriage. I phrased it that way because Leslie and Lee had two children of their own. The then nine-year-old Kieran was born in 1991, and three-year-old Leanne was born in 1997. August 31st, 2000 was a Thursday, so concerns were raised the following day when Sarah Jane didn't turn up for a shift at McDonald's. Anne-Marie, Stephen and Craig failed to attend Helston School the following day as well. Despite that, the alarm wasn't raised until a full month had passed. I'll come back to why that was later in the story. Leslie's brother, Peter Wyatt, was the one who finally raised the alarm and contacted the police with concerns regarding the whereabouts of his sister as well as his nieces and nephews. Peter, who lived 220 miles away in Hampshire, explained to the police that they were all missing at the start of October 2000, with the police holding a subsequent press conference on October 4th 2000. During the press conference, the police appealed to the public to come forward with any information regarding the whereabouts of the 36-year-old mother and her children. They also explained that Leslie's current husband, Lee, was missing, along with the two children. Lee wasn't missing, though. He had driven Kieran and Leanne up to Telford and dropped them off with some relatives before driving back down to Cornwall. Coincidentally, he did this on the same day the police held their press conference, and as luck would have it, Lee was spotted and arrested later that same day as he drove past Bodmin Moor. One of my sources suggested that Lee was arrested on suspicion of benefit fraud, which, if true, was likely just an excuse used to justify bringing him in for questioning. But it wasn't Lee's first contact with the police. They'd visited him a couple of days before the press conference after the alarm was raised by Peter Wyatt, Leslie's brother. Lee casually explained to the attending officers that he and Leslie had had a huge argument over money that resulted in Leslie leaving the house, taking the kids with her. He went on to say that he didn't report her as missing because, well, why would he? Many couples have arguments and storm out without the police ever being made aware. With no other avenues to explore at that time, the officers left. Michael Tranter, 
Leslie's ex-husband and father to her first four children, had no idea they were missing. Remember, he lived up in Telford and had started a new life with his partner, Denise Rimmer. He hadn't seen his kids since 1996 due to the difficulties mentioned earlier. With Lee in custody, a search of the Ford family's bungalow was soon underway. In the evening of October 4th, 2000, officers found three bodies buried under firewood in a shed behind the property. It's unreal how quickly things progressed on that fateful day. Sergeant Alan Mobbs of Devon and Cornwall Police said after the discovery of the bodies, We cannot tell if they are adults or juveniles, male or female. The bodies were found under a considerable amount of wood and were not obvious. They have been there for some time and there has been quite bad decomposition. The short-lived missing persons inquiry had now turned into a murder investigation. Two days later, on October 6, 2000, police found what they believed to be a recently dug shallow grave in a field in Trullswell near Penryn, a town nine miles northwest of Carnkey. The field is actually five or six miles away from Carnkey. At first glance, it looked as if only one body lay within it. However, further excavation would reveal that there were two bodies placed within the makeshift grave. That brought the total body count up to five, but the bad decomposition on each one made it difficult for officers to identify any of the victims. Sergeant Alan Mobb said, We cannot say which of the bodies were in the shed and which were buried in the field, as they have been dead for more than a month. None of them has been formally identified. At the field, casts were taken of tyre marks discovered at the scene along with footprints. Once all five bodies had been recovered, Lee Ford was formally arrested on October 6, 2000 on suspicion of the murders of Leslie, Sarah Jane, Anne-Marie, Stephen and Craig. Postmortems of each of the five victims were done at the Royal Cornwall Hospital in Trelisk, located on the outskirts of the Cornish city of Truro. The postmortem showed that each of the children and their mother had been garroted with what they felt was likely a piece of rope. The reason for that was there was no evidence of any bruising on any of the five victims' necks, meaning the killings were expertly carried out. A Home Office pathologist described the method as a silent and very efficient form of killing. Once the bodies of Leslie and her four children had been formally identified, their father, Michael Tranter, was informed. Leslie's parents, Margaret and Leslie, clearly she was named after her father, were also informed as were the teachers at Helston School. Michael made an emotional statement explaining how wonderful of a wife and mother Leslie was and expressed his severe heartache at not being able to see his kids ever again. Leslie's father said, We are devastated. We cannot take it all in. The fact that we have lost a daughter and grandchildren. The teachers at Helston School decided to bring in educational psychologists to offer support to Anne-Marie, Stephen and Craig's friends. Deputy Headmaster David Taylor said, We are very worried. It is clearly going to be a difficult time. The story will continue after these quick messages. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. 
Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. And now, back to the story. Lee would plead guilty to murdering all five members of his family, but let's break down what actually happened. Remember, this is all according to Lee. Sadly, we'll never be able to hear Leslie's side of the story because her life and that of her first four children were abruptly taken away by Lee. He said that Leslie had made threats towards him in late August 2000, which would have resulted in him no longer being able to see the children. I take that to mean all of the children instead of meaning just Kieran and Leanne. The primary reason for this was the ongoing sexual relationship between Lee and Sarah Jane, which had been going on for five months. During an especially heated argument one evening in late August 2000, Lee had lashed out and struck Leslie in the head with a rounder's bat. Think of it as a smaller version of a baseball bat if you don't know what the game of rounders is. At first, Lee went to the garage to cool off, but whilst there, he instead decided to kill Leslie. After a brief search of the garage, Lee found a two-foot-long piece of rope and headed back inside the house. Not knowing her husband was behind her, Leslie will have no doubt been surprised when Lee quickly placed the rope around her neck and began garroting her. Lee killed Leslie in their bedroom, and afterwards, he decided to kill each of her four children to Michael, one by one, in the kitchen. Using the same tactic as he had with their mum, Lee called the kids into the kitchen, one at a time, and carried out the horrendous acts. None of the children knew what had happened to the others who were called before them until it was too late. The following is a confession from Lee Ford made to Devon and Cornwall police. The next thing I remember is she's lying on the floor dead. I do not know why or what went through me. Leslie was killed in the bedroom, the four in the kitchen. They were strangled from behind with a rope. They did not know it was coming and none of them knew another one had gone before them. That my own hands have done what they have done to five people with a rope is a nightmare. I do not even understand why I did what I did. Somewhere amongst the argument, I snapped. The five brutal murders appear to have happened within the same 24-hour period, most likely during the evening of August 31st, 2000. Turning his attention now to how he would dispose of the five bodies, Lee placed each of them in a bedsheet, covered them in lime, and at first buried them all in the woodshed behind the bungalow. After that first surprise visit from the police, Lee decided to move the bodies somewhere else. The two bodies found in the field in Trulswell, Trulswell, sorry if I'm saying that wrong, were later revealed to have belonged to Sarah Jane and Anne-Marie, with Lee intending to move the remaining three bodies to the same place. Only his arrest while returning from Telford prevented him from doing so. After killing Leslie and the kids, Lee cancelled a job interview. He explained that his wife and kids had suddenly been overcome with food poisoning and that he had to look after them. The food poisoning story was also used to justify why Lee had dropped Kieran and Leanne off with relatives in Telford. Perhaps even more disturbing is that Lee told their neighbours that Leslie had left him and taken the kids with her. Not one to show any grief or remorse for his actions, Lee even reached out to an ex-girlfriend in an attempt to restart their relationship. This is two weeks after he's murdered his wife and her first four kids. 
Lee explained to the ex-girlfriend that Leslie had left him and would 100% not be returning. He told the teachers at Helston School that Anne-Marie, Stephen and Craig would not be attending anymore and he even attempted to cash Sarah Jane's last paycheck from McDonald's. He may not have shown any remorse, but he was certainly paranoid about getting caught. He purchased some surveillance equipment and aimed it at the woodshed behind the house, fearing someone may discover what he'd done. The last known contact of Sarah Jane was at 2.37pm on August 30th, 2000. That was when she'd last sent a text message to one of her McDonald's colleagues. A week or so later, on September 7th, one of Sarah Jane's friends sent her a text which simply read, Are you still alive? When the trial came round in May 2001, case prosecutor Nigel Pascoe QC explained that, in his opinion, the murders were premeditated rather than impromptu crimes of passion. He said, We say by any standards this was an enormous and pitiful tragedy and a tale of true horror. The sheer mechanics involved in five separate and virtually identical killings suggests a careful and planned homicide. Although Lee gave no official motive for the killings, in all likelihood it was down to a combination of not wanting his relationship with Sarah Jane to go public, as well as fears of Leslie leaving him and taking not only her kids, but theirs as well. After pleading guilty to all five counts of murder, Lee Ford was handed five separate life sentences on May 24, 2001 at Bristol Crown Court. His minimum term to serve before being eligible for parole was set at 27 years. Frustrated at what he deemed to be an incredibly lenient sentence, Michael Tranter's brother Andrew said, He will get what he deserves. We are hoping that life will mean life. He took the lives of five people, and he should get life without release himself. Understandably, Leslie's family are extremely worried that the man responsible for taking their lives will be able to walk the streets as a free man. In an attempt to prevent Lee's release, a petition to UK government was started by Nicky Budden titled Ensure a Killer Stays Inside and Never Comes Out. Nicky is the ex-wife of Peter Wyatt, Leslie's brother, who reported a missing in October 2000. The petition's initial target of 10,000 signatures was reached in November 2021, with the total figure standing at 15,372 at the time of writing. If the petition receives 25,000 signatures, it will become one of the most top-signed petitions on change.org. In the UK, your petition is supposed to get a response from the government once 10,000 signatures have been received, and with 100,000 signatures, your petition will be considered for a debate in Parliament. If you'd like to sign Nicky's petition, I've put a link in the episode description. Based on historical cases, it's sometimes possible for individuals who have been handed a life sentence to be referred to the parole board two years before the end of their minimum term. In Lee Ford's case, that won't happen. The parole board were recently contacted by Cornwall Live and they confirmed that Lee Ford must serve his full 27-year minimum before being eligible to apply for parole. That takes him to October 2027, when considering time already served before the trial and sentencing. When that time comes, Lee will be referred to the parole board by the Secretary of State for Justice. The parole board will then review Lee's case before deciding if he is safe to be released from prison. 
Peter Wyatt had the following to say about Lee's parole eligibility in five years' time. It's not long enough. I don't see how he is fit to be released. How is anyone after killing five people? Four innocent kids? He has never shown any remorse. He is going to be 60 when he gets out. He has still got a life and could make a life. It's not fair. We have not had a life since. It's on our minds and hurting all the time. We have suffered more than him. A Ministry of Justice spokesperson said in response, Our sympathy and thoughts remain with the family. While sentences are decided by independent judges, offenders are only freed if the parole board agrees they can be safely managed in the community and are subject to strict license conditions, including who they can see and where they can go. And that was a story of British murderer Lee Ford. Thanks again to Tamar Powsland for suggesting I cover a case based in Cornwall. My parents love it down there. I used to work with someone who was uncomfortably obsessed with the Cornish seaside town of St Ives. I used to sit at work and just watch CCTV footage from a camera aimed at the sea. Really, really weird. Love you, Richard. I've never been myself, though. I've got two new reviews to read out this week. Thank you, firstly, Apple Podcast user Jessica Johnston for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. Jessica said, 90% of the true crime podcasts I find that are good are all based in America. It's taken me a while to find a British true crime podcast, but now that I have, I'm so happy. The content and the way he tells the stories of the victims is incredible, but also straight to the point. Every now and then I listen to several during the day while working from home, and it's such a nice break from only American crime. As interesting as that is, I'm British, so it's interesting to hear some stories from closer to home. Love it. And finally, thank you, Apple Podcast user K underscore A underscore I underscore T, I'm guessing that's Kate, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review. They said, I found this podcast after finishing up one of my regular podcasts and love listening to these while working. Please keep making them. Also, love the crossover episodes. Thanks again, Jessica and Kate. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify and voicemail messages on BritishMurders.com. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via buying me a coffee, you can find the links for each of those on my website. Please continue to email your case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a shout-out. That's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.